the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all consolation, who consoles us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to console those who are in any affliction with the consolation which, with which we ourselves are consoled by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are abundant for us, so also our, our consolation is abundant through Christ. Second, if we are being afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. If we are being consoled, it is for your consolation, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we are also suffering. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our consolation. The word of the Lord. Welcome. Good to have you here on Martin Luther King weekend. Um, this past year, I gave several months to try to reread almost everything that he'd written. And I just, for his times, just astounded again by, by his brilliance. And I think it's marvelous that we as a people can at least want to begin there in our search to be uh, a holier country. Uh, on a much more mundane note, you know there are certain days that you just think, they didn't start right. This morning, I, when I was leaving the house, I got looking at my watch, I'm a little bit late, and so I was rushing out, and those notes that I meant to bring, yeah, they're still on my desk. And... I am going to be navigating with my, with my iPad a little bit. Uh, folks, I come from a large family. Uh, we were neither Mormon or Catholic. I think my dad was just a good economist, and he knew it was cheaper if you're going to run a farm to have a bunch of boys. And so there are four, I have four brothers and two sisters. And my mom had our graduation pictures. Did your moms ever do anything like this? My mom had graduation pictures in our house that if guests came, you had to all go by the, the wall of fame, right? And invariably, people would look at my brothers and me and they go, you guys don't look very much alike. And then there would be in the inevitable joke about the unnamed milkman. You know what I'm talking about. See, where I come from, there aren't a lot of great jokes, so there, you are always rehashing the same jokes. And, uh, and we didn't look alike. But a few years ago, it was my niece's wedding, and we were all together for the wedding. And people said, hey, how about the brothers all get in a line together? And we were standing there in front of the church, and, and somebody goes, oh my goodness, Look at how you guys all look alike. And it's not the hairstyle either. It was, uh, and somebody said, I see Dale in the boys. And somebody's, I think it was his wife, goes, well, I see Mary. That's my mom's name in, in you boys. And it's funny how as we've gone through life, we do. We kind of, you know, as we've gone through the slings and arrows of life, we've kind of taken on a family resemblance when we didn't know that, that it was there. Well, folks, uh, that's a little bit how I feel about the Apostle Paul in this letter. 
I know, you know, when I told folks that we were going to do a short little series on 2 Corinthians, I, I got the eye rolls about the Apostle Paul. Uh, people told me that they just, I'm not, they're not the biggest fans of St. Paul. For any number of reasons, I heard about Enneagrams and Myers-Briggs and Paul's on the other side. Uh, I, I heard the comments about what feels like uh, some of Paul's comments are misogynistic, um, or some folks just don't like his prescriptive tone, uh, all of that. But what I want you to do, I want to gently ask you to, to join me as we're sitting down today with an older Paul. Uh, maybe the differences, the slings and arrows, have filed him down a little bit. As an older leader, as we begin this book, he's leading with a limp. He really is. Uh, now, this is a Paul we seldom see because 2 Corinthians is a letter that's, that's pretty foreign to most of us. We might know 1 Corinthians, but pastors and teachers, they just kind of stop there and they never quite get to 2 Corinthians. And so apart from pastors naming an idea or quoting a verse, this is kind of unfamiliar territory to a lot of us. Paul here is more like Jeremiah. He's a weeping prophet. Still brilliant, but he's damaged goods. He's gone through some really, really hard times. Um, I know by now that it generally isn't CWOW's way to do deep dives into the text. But this morning, I think we can find a middle and ground, and I'm going to ask you to if you brought your Bibles or on your phones, to be looking up 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, because I think we're going to find common ground where the idea of how you lead in the shadows of life, we're going to be there. Have I piqued your interest? I hope so. But before we do a cannonball jump into the deep end of the pool, I want to give you a little bit more... <laughs> I want to give you a little bit more background because I think it's so helpful. The Apostle Paul planted this church. And as a church planter, I can tell you that you just feel differently about a church that you plant. I mean, I love you folks, but when your new pastor is installed, uh, I'm going to get on the train and go back to Sacramento and... Miss you, miss you, but it's not going to be the same way as with a church that you've planted. And even if the relationships are, are complex, you still feel parental about it. And that's some of what happened here. Corinth was a hot mess of a church, probably from its earliest days. But you still have such a deep bond and deep friendships there. Um, and here's the thing. Next slide. This 2 Corinthians is not Paul's second letter here. It's actually number four. So letter number two and letter number three, we don't have. 
1 Corinthians is number 2. 2 Corinthians is letter number 4. Now, next week, next week, Brother Ryan is going to be doing week number 2. And he's going to say that there were only three letters. But when he says that, if he says it, just smile and nod and, and act like you're agreeing with him. But I'm giving you the, the real truth here. So, uh, like, uh, in one sense, thank goodness we don't have letter number three. Because Paul calls that his painful letter. And, and it must have been a scorcher. Must have been really, really potent. He writes it uh, after he had gotten, after he had sent out second letter. He hears that, that things still aren't resolved. And so he hops a boat to, to next slide, to travel about five or six days on the fastest boats to get from Ephesus all the way to Turkey. And he's thinking that if I get there in person, then I can maybe resolve some of the problems. But when he gets there, from almost the moment his ship pulls into the harbor, it's like he is bushwhacked. Um, he is utterly ridiculed verbally skinned, and N.T. Wright suggests that maybe even physically beat up. Now, he is a man, if guessing, 56, 57, 58 years old, something like that, when he writes this. And he feels drenched with the contempt from some of these younger leaders, some of these very, very accomplished, smooth-speaking leaders, and it must have been so overwhelming for him that almost immediately he gets on the boat and he leaves. And it's back in Ephesus, that's when he writes the scorcher. And then he heard the blowback from Corinth. Well, Paul can write a good letter, but he sure wasn't much in person. When it gets a little hot in the kitchen, uh, Paul just cuts and runs. Now, again, imagine you are the founding pastor of this church. And you're probably hearing that some of these things are being said by people that you have prayed with. Maybe you have baptized them. What does that do to a person's heart? But about the same time, another calamity hits. Paul, we think, is thrown into a jail in Ephesus. And jails are not where you go and you serve a three-month sentence and then you get out. Jails were quite often where you go to die. They didn't feed you. You had to supply all of your own food. No one's taking care of you. You rot there. And it must have been grim. Depression, despair, hopelessness, all three of them become his cellmates. And at the end, he says, we despaired even to the point of death. Of death. Now, this is coming from somebody who was, the, who was this champion, who was this man who was very, very strong. Thank goodness 
the music changes. He gets out of prison and he finds that that letter number three, it began to subtly turn the tide a little bit. And some of the stand-up people that were still part of the church actually stood up to some of the verbal bullies. And now comes this letter. It still has a little bit of an edge to it at times, but it's much, much softer. But the task in front of him, folks, is tricky. How do I address the accusations that have just been flying at him by his opposition, but at the same time, turn those around and hopefully build the resiliency of the people in the church? Now, I have an object lesson for you of what that could look like. I know you can't see it, but trust me, this is one of those little things that you look at it from one direction and you see one thing, you turn it and you see something completely different. So if I had a larger one, imagine something like this big and you look at it from one direction and it looks like a portrait of Abraham Lincoln. And then if you turn just a little bit, it looks like Martin Luther King. This is called a lenticular picture. And like I said to Gustavo earlier in prayer time, this is one of those words that you can impress people with. When you go to work, you can just drop it in your conversation, something that is lenticular, and people are going to be impressed that, that you know that. But I think that is an illustration of what Paul is doing here, in, especially in the first and second chapter, because you look at it from one direction, and it looks as though Paul is reestablishing his credentials of leadership, because sometimes you just have to do that after you've been zinged so often. People don't know if they can trust you again. But you turn it just a little bit and you see Paul working to build into them the, re the resiliency that they're going to need for the future. So you, you got both sides of that. He's got to make his case about who he is and his leadership, but he also wants to build into them this, this internal fortitude that's necessary, especially when you are going through the major disappointments that you're facing in your life. Now, what were some of those, those accusations? Well, they were questioning his motives. Now, his motives aren't very good. Uh, they're questioning his privileges. Well, he's back in Ephesus. He's got everything going for him. He's got all of these people listening to him. Uh, they were questioning the quality of his leadership. Well, Paul's indecisive. He's not like us. He's, he's indecisive. Or he's unspiritual. Or he's political. He's just telling people what they want to hear, working the sides. Paul has a problem of his character, or he's got a problem with his ability. He doesn't have the capacity or ability to, do, to, to lead this worldwide movement. We do. He doesn't have it. Paul's not fit to lead. In the first couple of chapters, Paul is going to be coming back around to all of those. And he feels like he needs to reassert and, and reposition his leadership. But what I want to do is I want to take you to his, his opening first passage again. And 
you're going to see that I have highlighted one word or a form of word several times. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all consolation. Who? Oh, come on. Who consoles us in all our afflictions so that we may be able, able to console those who are in affliction with the consolation with which we ourselves are consoled by God. For just as the consolations of Christ are abundant for us, so also our consolation is abundant through Christ. If we are being afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. If we are being consoled, it is for your consolation, which you experience when you patiently endure the sufferings that we, all, we are also suffering. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our suffering, so also you share in our consolation. Now, this is an interactive morning, right? Yeah, shake your head, Hans. This is an interactive morning. So what did you notice? What word? Oh, <laughs> consolation or console. Nine or ten times he uses that. Now, in... in uh, languages of antiquity, they didn't have an exclamation point. They had no way to bold what they wanted to emphasize. They didn't use an underline. So generally what you would do is you would repeat the word, and most times, three times. Like, holy, holy, holy in Isaiah 6. So what happens when you come to something like this and you don't just repeat it three times, you don't repeat it six times, you repeat it at least nine times. You go, okay, so what's going on? Is he being angry? Um, but I'm not picking up anger here. Actually, I'm thinking it might even have a little bit of a whimsy feel. Because remember, he wants to teach. And I suspect, and I can't prove this, that he's answering one of the charges that people have been putting out in front of him. Oh, if you were a good apostle, your message would be one of consolation for us. You would be consoling us. You would be making us feel better. And Paul, you haven't done that. You've, you've been too harsh. So, do you want consolation? Let's talk about consolation. And so he then just goes boom, 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 boom. And what he's doing, I think, is that he's implying that you've come to me kind of like a dispenser that you put in your quarter. Well, when just one quarter would work, you put in your five quarters and you're expecting to get consolation from me. I'm not a vending machine, but your consolation is important. So let's, let's talk about this consolation idea. Because remember, I'm not just defending myself, but somewhere along the line, you slip from being a disciple into consumerism. And I want to bring you back and talk about where you find your consolation completely. Your, com your consolation don't look for it completely from me. Understand that your truest consolation 
is going to come from your relationship with, with Jesus Christ. And what he is going to say here is so rich. He's saying that when we struggle, somehow our heartaches are retroactively passed back into the sufferings of Christ himself. So remember that divorce, that, that time when you didn't get the job because of an earlier failure in your life? Um, the time when you were, you got that review that just, it crushed you. Or that deep medical problem that, that doesn't seem to go away, those, those pains of your life. What Paul is saying is all of that somehow is swirled back in and mixed into the very sufferings of Christ himself. That's a pretty mystical idea, that, that my sufferings just don't belong to me, that as a believer in Christ, that somehow they get mixed in with the losses, the heartache, the regrets of Jesus Christ himself. That there is a community, there is a fellowship of of suffering and pain that you become part of. And remember how Jesus interceded on behalf of, of his friends as well in his high priestly prayer? Well, that's continuing to go on in your life. And so my brothers and sisters back in Corinth understand that, that the consolation that you really wanted from me, it really goes back deeper and you need to find your consolation in the fact that your disappointments, your wounds, they are mixed in, somehow swirled in with Christ himself. And as the Father provided comfort for him and healing, that is going to flow to you in your life. What a deep, phenomenal idea that my pain isn't just my pain. And so when you are re recycling and, and retelling your yourself the failures, the disappointments of your life, understand that they aren't just yours. That God has mixed them in with those of Jesus. And healing occurs there. But it doesn't stop there. Out of that, as you are comforted, as you are healed, as you are restored you're called to offer the same sort of consolation to those who are far from God. So it isn't just we come together and, and we just look for comfort. There is always this sense that we are called to offer it to other people as well. We become consolers. We become people of comfort. Does this make sense? Now, a couple weeks ago, and boy, does it trouble me to be nice to you. No, Brother Tim did an excellent job that got us thinking about uh, our role of ministering to other people far outside. And, and one of the persons in our church family came to me at the end of the, at the, end of the message and said, boy, it would, it would be great if we could get some handholds as to how we have conversations 
about where we can provide comfort and consolation to people. I, I don't know how to even begin those kinds of conversations. And let's be honest, one of the things that's taken place in our world, in a very secular world, is that uh, the idea of, of proclaiming our faith, it just has gotten scary. And so we've become very comfortable with silence, right? Or at least I have. And we've lost any muscle memory that we might have had about how to talk about our faith. And so when the subject even comes up, it just, it just scares us because the, the thought of, of proclaiming my faith, all sorts of scary scenarios go on in my head of, of oh, I don't want to preach it to anybody. And what I want to say here about that is that when I talk about proclamation, I'm not talking about you having to do most of the talking. I think that's a, that's a wrong understanding. Um, my rule of thumb is I need to be quiet for the most part and listen to people. So I've got two suggestions for you, two different handholds just to start things off. So number one, oh, that's my lenticular picture. <laughs> that's, the, that's the one that you look at it from, from two different sides. And remember, side number one is Paul is rebuilding his sense of his responsibility and leadership. And the other is how to build resiliency. So both of those things are going on in these verses. So remember, Paul is saying, okay, my role is not to be the sum total of your consolation. I'm pointing you back to Christ. But the other is he's saying, look, let's talk, let's talk about your resiliency. You need to go back and see what your, what your comfort looks like in Christ, and then he moves you from that on into the future. Okay, next slide. So, one of the first things that I would encourage you to do is to get comfortable saying this. You know, you're talking with friends, and you've got to... Talking about all sorts of fascinating things. But then there is just, as you've been praying about that relationship... There's just something that they say that stops you in your spirit. The Holy Spirit just goes, whoop. And all you need to say is, hmm, say a little more about that. You know, nobody wants to be preached at. Nobody wants to be seen as somebody's project. We all like to talk about our favorite subject, and our favorite subject is us. So if we say, Say a little bit more about that. You're giving people permission to talk about their life and to actually enter deeper, enter more deeply into conversation. Uh, there probably is not a more important phrase I can teach you about proclamation than this one. Here's the second one. Quite often, that first sentence is going to lead to hearing pieces of their story. Things come out. And the second sentence is this. So, how do you make sense of your hard things? We all have them. 
we approach them differently. And now, this is a this is a sentence I've become very comfortable asking, uh, and it's opened amazing doors. And I think what it's done is. It hasn't opened up for me to immediately share the story of Jesus, but what it's done is it's created the sense that we can move beyond just surface sort of discussions with folks. But I know even as I bring that up, that can create nervousness because I may not know what to say. I get that. So what I wanted to do just to kind of wrap things up for this part today is to talk about how the, the general ways that most people might answer this. Because if you understand the generally how most people are kind of thinking through these things, it can prepare you for, for how to respond yourself. So let me just take you through those. First one is kind of Hinduism. Uh, with karma. How do they make sense of their hard things? Well, you get what you deserve until you don't any longer. And there are a lot of people who are operating out of this sense that, I, well, I guess I'm kind of getting what I deserve. And that's a very karmic way of, of looking at things. And there are a lot of people. The second one is Buddhism. In Buddhism, any sadness that you have comes from attachment. So what you need to do is you need to detach so that those things don't create pain inside of you. So if you have people who go, well, you know, I'm kind of operating out of a, a Buddhist worldview, which would be very prominent here in Berkeley, where they're coming from is you detach and you just keep leaning forward. That's how they're making sense of their hard things. Third one, deism. Deism is built on the idea that there may have been a God who created everything, but that God is now way off, distant from us. So all I can do here in this life is learn and then hopefully be surprised. Number four, atheism. And I don't need to explain a lot behind that, but the subtext is, well, we can't know anything. There's no real purpose in this life. So all you can do is just got to keep dancing. Number five, the Muslim worldview. How do you make sense of your hard things? You just surrender to an inscrutable Allah. And the last one, in Christianity, it's an alliance. How do we make sense of hard, our hard things? Well, we're not surprised by them. But Paul says that in our sufferings, we have been joined into a, a fellowship with Christ itself, himself. And out of that comes a calling of using our hard times to bring consolation to others, to, to bless others. 
And I don't know about you, but for me, having that sort of framework and understanding where people are coming from, it makes it easier to ask that second question. How do you make sense of your hard times? So I don't want you scared to ask that. Go there. And there will be times when you're not going to know what to say and you are desperately praying inside for what to say next. And the Spirit is going to give you words when you need words. But um, what I want to do here, Hans, come on up and and lead us from here. But I, I want to pray for us in two areas. Number one, that I want to speak words of hope to you because almost all of us have things that keep replaying in our head like pains and disappointments and frustrations and failures. Um, You are far too young as a congregation to remember eight-track tapes. Really? (laughs) Do you remember them? Oh, bless you. But you know how those things, they just loop. And on those dark nights, you know, when you can't sleep, the pain, the failures, the regrets, the things I wish I could change if I could just go back and change again, our heads do that. And what I want to speak to you today is, look at what Paul is saying here. All of those things somehow... The God of the universe has chosen to absorb those into the ministry of his son. Oh my goodness. Think about what's being said there. That he embraces the things that wound my soul most. And in that, the resources somehow that were available to Jesus get shared back with me so that healing can take place and that's what part of my prayer is for you that you could believe that and and experience that because we are called to freedom but it doesn't stop there we are called into that ministry of consolation for others let me pray father oh my goodness here is this broken man who's pushing 60 at a time when everybody else was retiring or winding down and he had to be feeling like has my life really been worth it at all look at this mess of things and he discovered things and was taught things about your heart for our pain that staggeringly powerful. May what he discovered be part of what we can discover, what we can practically live out. May there be the balm of your mercy, your grace, and your strength. May it flow to us today. But not leave it there. That this fellowship of community in pain, it's a call to also go out and courageously offer consolation to 
the person we really don't like at work or a coworker or a boss or a neighbor or a parent that we are wounded healers wounded healers going out to be people who continue your mission in this world pray this in Jesus name amen